25. Let me give you the setup, the players. This is the last major speech in Acts. Uh, we've got Paul. He's been a prisoner kind of under house arrest for about two years uh, in Caesarea. Festus is the new governor of Judea, and he's been on the scene just for a couple of weeks, and he's trying to figure out what to do with Paul. And then new guy comes on the scene today, King Agrippa, uh, King Agrippa II. He's not the king of the province uh, where Paul is. He's not the king of Judea, but of a neighboring uh, territory. He's the king, but he has a, a good grasp of Jewish theology and Jewish custom, and he has a good bit of influence in Jerusalem. He's the one who actually gets to pick who the high priest is. We talked about Ananias the past couple of weeks. He's a high priest. Agrippa's the guy that gets to pick who the high priest is going to be. So he's got a lot of influence uh, within Judaism. And what Festus is hoping for is that Agrippa can help him understand what's going on with Paul. Paul has, has appealed to the emperor, so Festus is sending him on to Nero uh, so that Nero can deal with him. Festus has to write a letter to accompany Paul, and he doesn't know what to write because he doesn't understand what the issue is between the Jews and Paul, and he's hopeful that Agrippa, as someone who understands Judaism, can help him figure things out. So that's where we're going to pick up chapter 25, verse 13. Uh, this first section is really just setting the scene. A few days later, so that's after Paul has appealed to go to Rome, King Agrippa and Bernice, that's Agrippa's sister, arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Makes sense that Festus has only been on the job again a couple of weeks that the other dignitaries would come and introduce themselves. Since Agrippa and Bernice were spending many days there in Caesarea, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there's a man here whom Felix left as a Jerusalem. The chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against this prisoner and asked that he be condemned. I told him it's not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they face their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stay in trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. And Festus replied, tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man, the whole Jewish community, has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about this man. Therefore, I brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write, for I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. It was actually, it wasn't just unreasonable. He'd get in a lot of trouble if he did that. So he's kind of covering him himself with this. So again, that's everything that we just talked about. That's the setup. That's where we've been for the past 
couple of weeks, Paul has been, the Jews have accused him of multiple things. And, and many of those charges have been dropped after the, over the course of these last two years. And what we've gotten down to is the Jews and Paul are having a disagreement about the resurrection of Jesus. And again, Festus is just at a loss to know how he's supposed to present that to Nero in a way that makes any sense at all. So hopefully Agrippa can help him. This is not an official trial. There are no Jews here who are going to be pressing charges against Paul. It's just a, it's an inquiry, if it's anything. It's Agrippa wanting to hear from Paul so that hopefully he can help Festus. So here's Paul's, you can call it a defense, but again, this isn't a legal trial. It's more Paul sharing his testimony and giving his story. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They've known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it's because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is a promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it's because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? So pause here. This is Paul's opening statement. He's saying, I'm a, I'm a Jew. I've always been a good Jew from the time I was born. And if any of my accusers were honest, they'd tell you, I've, I've been a good Jewish man. In fact, I was a member of the strictest sect of our religion. I was a Pharisee. And this whole controversy, everything uh, surrounding this really boils down to this one point. I believe God did what he said he would do. God's, God in the Old Testament spoke of a resurrection of the dead, and I believe that's happened in Jesus. I believe Jesus is the first one to be raised from the dead. And I don't understand why my fellow Jews have a hard time believing that. It was something that God promised, something God foretold. So why is it incredible to think that God would actually do what he said he would do? And so again, everything for them revolves around this idea of Jesus being raised from the dead. Paul's been accused of leading uprisings, of leading revolts, of, of, uh, desecrating the temple, all of that stuff has been pushed aside. There was no evidence of any of it, and it's all gone. And you can see what Festus says in chapter 25, verse 19. The, as far as he can understand, it's a disagreement about this man who's dead named Jesus, who Paul is saying is alive. Everything is hinging on the, the, the fact of the resurrection. Paul picks up, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities." On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, 
Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. So Paul's trying to establish some common ground here. He says, I don't get why the Jews don't, can't grab onto the fact that God has done what he promised to do, but I was in the same boat. I spent a long time persecuting those who said Jesus was raised from the dead. And he goes into great detail about how zealous he was in persecuting Christians. I thought they were heretics. I tried to get them to blaspheme. I was one of the ones saying, yes, let's stone them. Remember all the way back to Acts I think it's chapter 8 where Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church, is killed. It says the, the folks who throw rocks at him are laying their cloaks at Saul's feet. He's giving his approval of that action. And so Paul says, on this one hand, I don't understand why they're so upset that I would say God has done what he said he would do. And on the other hand, but I, I was one of them for a long time. But then I had this experience on the road to Damascus, there's this bright light, and I heard a voice from heaven call me by name. And I said, who are you? And the voice said, Jesus. Dead people don't talk, and they certainly don't talk from heaven. We know Jesus was crucified. It happened in Jerusalem. It was our religious leaders who pressed the charges against him. It was one of our guys, Joseph of Arimathea. It was in his tomb that they laid the body. He's one of the Sanhedrin. We know he was dead. And then I hear him speaking to me, calling me by name in my native language, Aramaic. I hear that from heaven. That changes everything for me. This one who I was so convinced was dead, I now realized was alive. And he gave me a mission. And he said, you've got to tell everybody else. You're going to be a witness to Jew and to Gentile that I've been raised from the dead. You're going to be a witness to Jew and to Gentile. That there is forgiveness of sins. That they can be adopted into the family of God. Both Jew and Gentile. And I've done that. That's all I've been doing. That's all I did for ten years. I traveled all around the Roman Empire. In every city I went to, I preached in synagogues and I preached in the marketplace. To Jew and to Gentile. I established churches. I preached this gospel that God has given me. I've been faithful to this commission. The reason the Jews are so upset is because I'm saying Jesus was raised from the dead. And I don't understand it. All of this stuff that I'm saying, Agrippa, and everything that I've been doing is rooted in the Old Testament. Here are a few scriptures you can see up there on the screen. All of these things are are found in the Old Testament. And Paul's saying, this isn't new. This isn't novel. I'm not creating some new religion here. It's a fulfillment of the Jewish hopes that are found in the Jewish Bible given by the 
God of the Jews. The Messiah would suffer. Read Psalm 22 and Psalm, and excuse me, in Isaiah 53. Full of images that we see in Jesus' crucifixion. The Messiah would suffer. The Messiah would be raised to life. You can see that in Isaiah 53 and in Psalm 1610. And that the Messiah would move beyond the nation of Israel to the Gentiles. We see that in Isaiah 49, among other places. And what Paul is saying is, all of the things that I'm saying about Jesus were foretold in the Old Testament. And we know Jesus died, and I can produce over 500 witnesses that he's been raised to life again. If that is the case, I don't understand why there's so much controversy here. And then Festus jumps in and cuts him off. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And so we see there, again, Festus is going, time out. This doesn't make any sense. People don't come back from the dead. Paul, you're really smart, and maybe you're too smart for your own good. Ludicrous for many Gentiles to believe in resurrection of the dead. And Paul says, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to Agrippa. He understands Jewish scripture. He understands Jewish theology. He's, this, he's my audience here. Reminds us of Acts 9.15. Where God says to Paul through the prophet Ananias, you're going to preach to kings. And that's exactly what he's doing here. It's the fulfillment of that word to Paul we see played out in his life. He's preaching to this king, Agrippa, who has a Jewish background. And he is trying to convert him. And Agrippa realizes that's what Paul's trying to do. He's not just talking. He's trying to convert him. For Paul, the logic of his case is, is really, it's tight. If the Old Testament predicted these are the marks of the Messiah... He's going to suffer. He's going to be raised to life. He's going to minister to the Gentiles. Jesus suffered. Jesus was raised from the dead and he ministered to Gentiles. If this is what the Old Testament says, here's the profile of the Messiah and Jesus fits the profile. Therefore, Jesus must be the Messiah. For Paul, the logic is very tight. He says it's reasonable. Agrippa understands this. And so then he puts Agrippa on the spot. You believe the Old Testament, don't you, king? And Agrippa realizes what's happening. If he says, yes, I believe the Old Testament, then Paul's logic kicks in. Well, then you believe Jesus is the Messiah, right? If Agrippa says no, then he risks offending and alienating the Jews. And he's got, again, he has authority, he has influence in that place. And the last thing he wants to do is tick those guys off. And so he pulls back. Paul, what are you trying to do? You're not going to convince me. And through one message that, uh, that I should be a Christian, and he, and he leaves. He's, can't, he's not willing to engage Paul. We saw that last week um, with Felix, the previous governor. When Paul speaks and he begins to feel conviction, his response is, I can't, 
He's afraid is what the Bible says. He's afraid of what Paul is saying and he can't engage with him on a heart level. We see the same thing with Agrippa. There's a there's an unwillingness to engage with Paul and there's an unwillingness to engage with the truth uh, that Paul is proclaiming. He can't do it. And so he just withdraws from him and he says Paul hadn't done anything. So fourth time that Paul's been found innocent. If you go back through, I think there's a list there on the screen. And this was really for Luke's audience. He wanted the guys who would come after Paul, the guys who were going to come after him to see there's nothing illegal about what you're doing. There's nothing wrong with it. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, said, we don't find anything wrong with this guy. Lysias, who's the the Roman commander in Jerusalem who first arrests Paul, says he's innocent. He hadn't done anything deserving of death or imprisonment. Festus, Felix, the governors, they say he's innocent. Agrippa, the king, he's innocent. And so every, every place, every court that Paul stands in front of says he hasn't done anything worthy of imprisonment or death. And again, that's, that's really for Luke's audience to hear. It's a vindication of the gospel. There may be times when you're persecuted. There may be times when you're oppressed. There may be times when even your faith, practicing your faith is illegal. But you need to know there's... There, there's nothing underneath all of that. We see Paul found innocent time and time and time again. And so then Agrippa says he could go free. And so the question is, well, did Paul mess up? Should he have not appealed to Caesar? Should he have not have said, send me on to Rome? If he hadn't, then they would have cut him loose. If, if Paul hadn't appealed to Rome, then this scene never happens. Festus says, hey, let's go to Jerusalem and have a trial And we know from chapter 25 that there's a group of Jews waiting to ambush and assassinate Paul in transit. So none of of this happens if Paul doesn't appeal to Caesar. It's not just that he doesn't testify before Agrippa. He's most likely going to be killed in transit from Caesarea to Jerusalem. So it was the right play for him, even though he could have been, according to Agrippa, set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. You can't really stop that appeals Process or these guys didn't have the authority to stop that appeal process. It had to continue, and we'll see uh, next week Paul finally making it to Rome. Although it's a pretty roundabout way uh, that he does so. So, two questions for us this morning: One, why should you consider it incredible that God raised Jesus from the dead? That was the question Paul asked Agrippa. Again, for Paul, the logic is tight. These things were foretold in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be raised from the dead. Paul's got over 500 witnesses that Jesus was raised from the dead. So for him, he doesn't, again, he doesn't see how people can't make that connection, even as someone who is adamantly opposed to the idea that Jesus was raised from the dead for at least a, a chunk of his life, for a period of time. Paul was adamantly opposed, but he became convinced when Jesus spoke to him. And again, I think Paul would say, I can produce over 500 witnesses. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15. There's over 500 witnesses who who saw Jesus after his resurrection. I've got miracles, Paul said. I I can produce miracles in all of these towns throughout the Roman Empire done in the name of Jesus. There's credible evidence to believe he's been raised from the dead. And if that's the case... Then he's the Messiah. And so he's saying, why is it hard for y'all to believe that God would do what he says he would do? And I think that that maybe presses back on us. Many of you, you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's not hard for you. 
you cleared that hurdle when you said yes to him at whatever point in your life you did. There may be a handful of you here this morning who have yet um, to say yes. You've yet to kind of reconcile or, or investigate that fact for yourself. Has Jesus, in fact, been raised from the dead? And if so, what does that mean for me? Lent is a great time to do that investigation. The next four and a half weeks, five weeks as we lead up to Easter, a great time to be asking that question. Tons of of good uh, research out there that hopefully can speak to your mind and can speak to your heart about that reality. But for many of you, you've already said, yes, that you don't find it incredible that God could raise Jesus from the dead. But there are other things that we do find incredible. That word incredible is hard to believe. There's other things that we do find it hard to believe that God would do. Some of us find it hard to believe that people can come forward and be prayed and for and be healed. Some We find that hard to believe. Some of us find it hard to believe that God could speak and that we could hear him and he could lead us in our daily life. Some of us find it hard to believe that God can change a city or a country or a world. We find those things difficult to grab onto. Here's a few. I want you to close your eyes if you would. I'm going to talk you through a few promises of God. This is just a few. All New Testament. I didn't even... Reach back into the old. You can multiply this by 20, easy. Number of promises in the Bible. And I'm going to say them. And what I want is just your gut, no external response, but in your heart. Do you believe that this is true for you? Not just do you believe God can do this. Most of you believe God can do anything. But do you believe God will do this? And then more specifically, do you believe God will do this for you? Is this promise true for you? Eternal life. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Many of you have already, you would say, yes. I believe that if I put my faith in Jesus, I'll live forever with God. Forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Many of you would check that and say, yes. I believe that if I confess my sins, Jesus forgives me or God forgives me. Some of you wrestle with that. You don't believe God removes your sins as far as the east is from the west. You still wrestle with guilt and condemnation from things God has forgiven you of. What about wisdom? Wisdom is knowledge applied. Do you believe God can direct you? That if you need to know how to do something, how to parent, how to create a budget, how to run your business, how to talk to an employee... How to engage your neighbor. Do you believe God can give you the wisdom for that? James says, if any of you lack wisdom, just ask. Is that one for you? What about provision? Do you believe God will meet your physical needs? God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Jesus. Would you say yes? God will take care of me. Food, shelter, clothes. We show the next one. Do you believe God can redeem any and all circumstances in your life? Romans says he works everything for good. Would you say, yeah, I I believe that. I believe he can use even death. He can use tragedy. He can use evil. He can use suffering. He can use all of those things for his glory and my good. What about healing? Do you believe God can physically heal you? Power for living. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Would you say, yep, I believe that's true for me. 
God will empower me to live a faithful and a fruitful life. What about peace? Philippians says that as we pray, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts. Do you believe God can do that for you? Matthew 7 says, If we're evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more will our Father in heaven give good gifts to us? You believe God has good things, good gifts in store for you. And all you have to do is ask. Y'all can open your eyes. On that outline, all of those things are listed if you want to see them. If there were one or two, maybe there were one or two there. Maybe there were more, but I would imagine for everybody there's one or two. And you're going, I'm not sure that's true for me. Maybe I get it intellectually, but I'm not sure that that actually functions. I'm not sure I live that way. If you want to know if you truly believe that those things are um, available to you, Look at your prayer life. If you're not praying for those things, then you don't believe they're for you. That's just that's the easiest way to say that. It's not a, a metric. If you're not asking God to do those things, then most likely it's because you don't believe God will will do those things. If you did, then you would. Does that make sense? And so, um, as you think about that again, you're one or two. Why do you find it incredible? Why do you find it hard to believe that God would fill in the blank? whatever that is for you. For some people, it's unbelief. And unbelief can have lots of roots. For some people, uh, unbelief is rooted in kind of their experience. They see what would be, you know, wicked, wickedness triumphing. They see suffering. They see evil. And they say, well, God's not active. I can't believe in a God who's good and who's, and who's active when I look at all the suffering in the world. There are Christians who would say that God does apostles. God doesn't intervene in history Anymore, And some people just have a belief system that says God doesn't do that kind of stuff. Some people have a belief system that says God doesn't speak anymore. He doesn't do that. He spoke to the prophets and there are none of those guys left. You may have a belief system that cuts God out of acting in your life. For some people, it's, you show that slide, Ben? It's disappointment. It's suffering. Ignorance. You've just never experienced it. Or maybe for some of you, you don't believe because you're you. And you just think, that's not for me. You have a low sense of who you are in God's eyes. And you would think, well, it's, that, that's for other people. I talk to people all the time who, who don't pray, don't ask God to work in their life, because they say, well, my situation's not as bad as somebody else's. Like, God has this, and I'm thinking, do you think God is limited? That he's saying, well, you know, if I answer Ruth Allen's prayer, then I'm not going to answer the prayer of the kid who's starving in India. And so that kid's going to die hungry because God gave Ruth Allen a new pair of shoes or whatever it is she asked for. He's not he's infinite. He doesn't say, well, if I work in your life that I'm not working in somebody else's. He's able to do both. And so you don't have to think that way in terms of, well, my need is not really that great. I don't really my, I'm not that whatever that is that would cause you to pull back. In the Old Testament, when the people of Israel had difficulty, God reminded them of crossing the Red Sea. He said, you remember that. You remember you were slaves in Egypt, and I brought you out of Egypt, and you crossed that lake. I made it dry. And then you spent 40 years in the wilderness, and every day I gave you food from heaven. Every day when you went outside, except the Sabbath, there was food for you. 
And then we came to the Jordan River and I made that dry too so you could cross. And, and I led you in conquering this land, including in some weird way, walking around the walls of the city makes them fall down in Jericho. Remember that defining moment in Israel's history. So when you're struggling, people of God, to remember or to believe, when you're struggling to believe that God is for you, that God is stronger than the gods of the other nations, you remember what I did in bringing you out of Egypt. As New Testament believers, what God says to us is you remember an empty tomb. You remember a resurrection. When you struggle to believe that I heal diseases, when you struggle to believe that I speak, when you struggle to believe that I win, when you struggle to believe that I work justice, when you struggle to believe that I provide, when you struggle to believe that I empower, when that's hard for you, look back. You remember an empty tomb. And every promise that God makes falls under that umbrella. An empty tomb reminds us of a Messiah who triumphed over sin and Satan and sickness and death. And all of God's promises are yes and amen in him. And so the resurrection shows that the check cleared, that he can be trusted. And so the question for us is, what are we going to remember when you're struggling? If you're you're thinking of that one or those two areas that's hard for you to believe, You find it incredible to think God would do blank in your own life. What are you going to remember? Are you going to remember your list of reasons why not? Are you going to remember an empty tomb that says yes? We'll move into ministry. Bo's going to come up and lead us in a song. And the song is called Give Me Faith. Even faith itself is a gift. You may need to ask the Lord this morning, God, give me faith. To believe that you want to fill in the blank. Whatever your one that you're struggling with, don't pick six of them. That's overwhelming. Pick one. This one's hard for me. And this is one I need right now. Give me faith to believe. You just sang a song that said, God, you're good. You're never going to let us down. God, I need faith to believe. I've been disappointed in the past. Give me faith to believe. I'm going to ask you one more question as we close. Are you kicking against the goads this morning? Jesus says to Paul or to Saul, you're kicking against the goads. It's hard for you. A goad is a pointed stick that uh, farmers would use. And they would use it when they were plowing. And if the oxen were moving off track, they would poke them with that stick to get them back on the right path. It was a, a tool to keep, keep oxen on the right road. And that's the metaphor there that Jesus uses with Paul. You're moving in the wrong direction. You're resisting my will for your life. And he says it's hard. That word hard doesn't mean difficult. It means dry. Interesting. It's dry for you. Your life is shriveled up without, if you're going to live disobedient to me. If you're going to resist my call on your life, your life is going to be empty in a shell How do you know if you're kicking against the goad? You feel pain. That's what happens when you get poked with a stick. It hurts. That's how the oxen know, hey, I'm walking the wrong direction here. Every time you feel pain, it doesn't mean you're kicking against the goads. But if you're feeling pain, it's worth asking the question, God, why? If pain is an indicator that something's wrong and you're experiencing, God, what's wrong? What does that look like? What is that pain? It's it's almost all internal. It's restlessness. 
it's frustration, it's fruitlessness or barrenness, it's a lack of peace and joy. Are you grouchy? Are you testy? Uh, when you're kicking against the goads, what you've done is you've stepped outside of God's grace for your life. So what you're left is to do things in your own strength. Are you wearing out and burning out? If you would answer yes to any of those questions, you very well may be kicking against the goads. You're resisting God's call on your life, and your life is becoming dry. And that may be how you describe it. So you want to ask the Lord as we move into ministry, give me faith. To say yes to the direction on, uh, that you would have for me. Give me faith to submit and not to resist in this particular decision. It's normally around one decision. Don't think about your, necessarily your life as a whole. Is there an area of tension and conflict in your own heart? A place where you're not settled. Again, a place where you're feeling anxious and worried. All of those things can be an indication. You're kicking against the goads. You're not experiencing God's grace in your life because he doesn't have grace for that for you. And so there's no grace available to you for that. He's, he's, he's wanting to draw you back. And that internal pain that you feel is an indicator that that's what he wants to do. The contrast is Matthew 11:28 through 30 where Jesus says, My yoke is easy, my burden is light. A, a yoke is an implement that you would put on a, an ox to help it pull a cart And Jesus says, mine fits you well. Don't hear easy as no difficulty. We've seen Paul's life had plenty of difficulty. And he was wearing the yoke God put upon him. David, Moses, go through. It doesn't mean you're not going to have difficulty and suffering. What it means is it's going to fit you well. That's that's the difference. If you're kicking against the goad, you experience internal pain. If you're walking the direction God has for you, you're wearing the yoke that he has for you. It's easy. It's light. And again, hear that as it's well-fitting. There's fruit. There's peace. There's joy. You may be tired, but it's a good tired. It's not a burned-out tired. So that's my question to you. Two questions. One, do you find it hard to believe God would keep his promise to you this morning? Two, are you kicking against the goads? The answer to both, the solution for both, is God, give me faith to trust you. Let's pray. God, I pray as Bo sings over us, I pray for us that we would enter into this as really a prayer. And God, as we're seated here, we, there may be, and for you, you may just need to sing this song prayerfully this morning, pleading, asking God, give me faith. For some of you, you just need to sit quietly as the Lord works in your heart. Some of you may want to come forward and Kneel, you can kneel in this front row where Ashley and Ruth Allen are sitting. We'll make some room if you just want to kneel and have some time with the Lord yourself. But Holy Spirit, I pray you would come and you would fill our hearts, that you would lead us and guide us. I pray that you would give each one of us faith to believe you to be true to your word. That we would believe that because of the resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom is here now. Yes, still coming, not fully yet. But we can experience the reality of resurrection life now. And God, I thank you that you have a plan and a purpose for each man and woman in this room. And that when we move off track, you lovingly draw us back. Not because you're some kind of dictator, but because you're a loving father who knows what's best. 
So give us faith to submit our very lives to you this morning. Anyone who's kicking against the goads, would you bring conviction and revelation and give them faith to submit? In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead.